But when you're open to like the universe and things working out, however they're meant to work out and unfolding, it shifts your definition. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the I'm Lost, So What podcast. As usual, this is your host, Cassandra Lay, and today I am bringing on Chloe Anderson, who is the managing partner and leadership strategist at Co-Create Work. Chloe and I have been working together through the Quirky Pineapple Studio for about a year plus. And let me just tell you a little bit about Chloe. She is the managing partner who heads the leadership development and management practice at Co-Create Work, which is a workplace consultant consultancy guiding businesses to systems level changes that result in measurable successes and true inclusivity. She's worked in six countries over her 20 plus career in positions like senior global HR advisor at Citigroup and leader of learning and development for 8,000 professionals at Amazon. She brings a cross-industry and cross-cultural perspective to her work in leadership strategy, management, cultural communications, and team building. In this podcast episode, we are talking all about Chloe's time abroad and what it was like for her to move home, what emotional self-awareness and agility is, something that she actually helps her clients with through co-create work, and what it was like for her to leave her religion. So I'm excited for you all to listen to this episode and just all of the good stuff that came out of it. Let's dive in. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm Cassandra Lay, and you're listening to I'm Lost, So What? The podcast exploring between belonging and carving your own path. For all the peeps out there who kind of know what you're doing, but still question, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, I'm with you. Hey, Chloe. Hi, Cassandra. I'm super excited to have you here. How are you? I'm good, and I'm excited to be here. Yay. Okay, so let's just dive in because I feel like I have lots of questions for you, and I know a little bit of your story since we've been working together for a while now, but I'm always curious to learn more. So the first question that I always start off with is what does being lost mean to you? And can you describe the feeling of being lost? Um, Yes, this is such, you know, I saw this question and you sent it over to me and it's such an interesting question because I thought, I don't know that I have really felt lost in a long time. And I think it's, it's an interesting thing. And I think in part because I was in so many situations as a kid. And then also as we'll get into with traveling and living abroad, so many situations where I did feel really lost that I think I've gotten to a point of like, I recognize it. For me, it is kind of the feeling of lost is like, I'm not sure what to do next. Mm. That's what it feels like to me. And so, yes, I still get that. But I also have this whole history of life of things working out and me figuring it out. So even though I have that experience of like, oh, I'm not sure what's next or I'm not sure where to go or what to do, I also have full confidence that I'll figure it out. Mm, Oh, I love that. So there are a couple other people who have answered the question on the podcast. And a lot of them have said, oh, it's like this feeling of not knowing what's going to happen next. Which yeah. is then coupled with anxiety and like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, very normal things. But I love what you were saying about like you have the history of like, an experience of life that it's, I guess it's cultivated this sense of self-trust that it'll all work out. I was just going to say, and it's funny because there are two things I, my mom always kind of drilled into us as kids. One, it, one was don't borrow trouble, which just means don't, oh, you know, that. don't worry about tomorrow. Yeah. Like worry about things when you need to worry about them. 
And the other one is it always works out. And I feel like what I just gave you as an answer is 100% my mom, like it always works out and don't borrow trouble. It's like, I I am lost. I'm not really sure what to do next, but I know I'm going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so there's no point in worrying about it. Yeah. Which is funny because I worry a lot about a lot of things, but, but being lost is not one of them. Oh, okay. I have questions on that, but maybe they'll they'll come out or your answers will come out as we answer the other questions I've got. But before I get into like living abroad and moving back home to the United States, what do you think helped you cultivate that feeling of one self-trust that, okay, I know this is going to be fine, but then not even just self-trust, but like trust in the universe, I guess that it'll all be okay. That is a great question. I think, I think in part having a mom who was constantly saying those things when mm-hmm. life was like not going well. And, you know, as a teenager, things feel huge. Yes. And to have a mom who was just saying, it'll work out, it'll work out. And then it always has worked out. And working out doesn't mean it's interesting because I feel like it's self fulfilling prophecy because working mm. out, if you have a very defined definition, defined definition, if you have a very clear definition of like what working out is going to look like, then maybe it doesn't so much. But when you're open to like mm. the universe and things working out, however they are meant to work out and unfolding, it shifts your definition. And so it gives, it gave me that confidence of like, even if it's not what I hoped it was going to be, I know that it will be something great. Hmm. And I'm not really sure. I think maybe it's just, maybe part of it is just optimism and like a positive attitude about things and a little confirmation bias probably (laughs) creeping in to go, oh yes, this is what happens. So this is what was meant to happen. But for whatever reason, it's worked out really well. I also feel like I have learned how to set good expectations, like Mm. not low expectations. So as an example, when I move somewhere, I have learned I have to give myself six months before Mm -hmm. deciding whether or not it was a good move because it just takes time. So in that, it's all those little things that I've learned about myself where I'm like, okay, this takes six months. So then I don't get stuck in the like, this is terrible. I'm homesick. What did I do? And I realize I've gone way far, but, but circling back, I think those, those expectations, that voice in my head, like all of those things are what give me that confidence. Mm. Oh, I love all of this. And actually, I don't think you went that far because I'm about to ask you about living abroad anyway. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, So you've worked in six countries in your 20 plus career, which countries have you lived in? What did you learn from each of them? And do you have something you miss about being abroad? Those are like three questions in one. So if you need me to repeat them later, let me know. No, I'm good. Okay. So let's start with, so it even started before my career. I was an exchange student in high school. Okay. And I lived in Belgium. So that was my first experience living abroad. I was 14. Oh my gosh, that's really young. I know. I know. My parents, I think they just knew I was going to figure out how to do it. And so they were like, okay, fine. Wow. So that was number one. And... I was too young. I was very homesick the entire Mm. time. It was supposed to be 10 months and it ended up being five months. months. That's a long time too. That is a long time. So five months, it ended up being five months. And I'm going to go through and just talk about what I learned in each one as I'm going. We'll just go chronologically. So the lesson, like, I feel like it was such an important lesson as a 14 year old. First of all, I learned that 
I actually liked my family and was happy to go back to them. So that was great. Okay, good. But in terms of living abroad, it kind of is encapsulated in one story. It was Christmas Eve. So I was spending Christmas with this family and it's Europe. And so gifts are done Christmas Eve and everyone had a pile of gifts on the table. Just a different experience than what I'd had. Yeah. And Christmas had always been a huge thing in my family and like over the top, you know, parents compensating etc. So just, <laughs> just big, huge. So I was yeah. talking to my family that night and, and the host family had bought me a coat. I needed a coat. It was so nice of them. And I, I had my own gifts. Like it was, it was lovely. I was talking to my family that night though. And I, in English and not thinking about whether people mm. could understand what I was saying or how much context. And I made the comment to my family, oh yes, they just, you know, it's different than us. They just had these small piles of gifts on the table. And then we each opened them. I was explaining it. Well, my host mom heard the small gifts oh. comparison and it turned into a thing. And she like confronted me kindly. Yeah. Um, but it was this learning moment of, I really needed to be aware of a difference isn't bad. And yeah. I didn't feel like it was bad either. I, but I, the way I was talking about it yeah. came across that way. So I also learned this lesson about perception and mm. intent versus impact, Yeah, which now I have the language for it. I didn't at the time, but yeah. it was very like, oh, I said this thing, which I did not mean that way at all. And that's how she heard it. And I want to make sure that she knows that that's not how I feel. Mm. And so having that conversation, but also just that awareness that like the way my family did things or the way America, you know, the United States does things is yeah. not the only way and it's not the right or best way. It's yeah. just a way. Yeah. And I feel like as a 14 year old, that was such I a valuable lesson to learn. Like yeah. it, was, it changed. I feel like it changed my whole life wow. to learn that lesson. Wow. So that was, that was country number one. Okay. Oh my gosh. If that there one go. was number one, what were number, like the rest <laughs> so, of the life? The next two were France and Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I was raised Mormon and I went on a mission for the Mormon church. And I already, having lived in Belgium and taken French for years, already spoke French, which doesn't necessarily have a huge impact, but I give it for con as far as where you go. But I, in terms of context, I already spoke the language, which was great because lots of missionaries do not already speak the language yeah. and you have eight weeks of training. And then you're just sent into this country and oh, wow. have to like learn, learn by doing, which immersion, right? That's yeah. what you learn. And so that was a very different experience because I wasn't living in the country as like a member of society. I was yeah. living in the country as a missionary. And mm. so my context was very different. And I spent a lot of time with not necessarily French or Swiss people, but with refugees mm -hmm. um, who, you know, were displaced, spent a lot of time in that. And as far as that experience went, it was very, it was less about the country and more about the missionary yeah. experience. Solidified my language skills for sure. I love both France and Switzerland. I have not been back since I left Mormonism. So I would like to and have just that experience as yeah. well of like drinking wine and experiencing what the countries are like. But those two, it was very much more the Mormon experience, but they also just broaden your horizons, right? Yeah. Anytime you live overseas, you just have, have that breadth and you see things differently, yeah. especially working with and talking to a lot of refugees, just a different experience of what that's like in the country. 
The one thing I will say is I gained a, a great appreciation for national health care. <laughs> like for <laughs> I love that. <laughs> right. There's there's that piece for sure. And the food. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a foodie. And so of course that was lovely. So oh, those were those two. Okay. So that's um, three, right? That's three. Okay. Yes. So then fast forward career-wise, and I was working for Citigroup, Citibank at the time, and Mm -hmm. living in New York, and I had an opportunity to go to Japan for a six-month assignment, and which I was really excited about. I actually had, there was Japan and there was India, and in my mind, I actually wanted the India assignment, Mm. so I was like, I'm not sure how long-term I'd want to live in India, but six months sounds amazing. Didn't work out that way. Ended up going to Japan, um, which interestingly, my grandparents had lived in Japan in the 70s. Yes. My grandfather had worked for IBM and they were over in Japan. And so as a child, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house and they had lots of Japanese decor. Mm. My grandmother would use Japanese phrases for certain things that we all picked up on. Oh, wow. And so it was this really cool experience because I was going to this country I'd never been to before. I'd never been to Japan. I'd never been to Asia at all. And still feeling this level of connection because I'd had some like cultural yeah, exposure. That's so, so cool. yes, it was amazing. So I, I got there. It was supposed to be a six month assignment, which was lovely because it meant I went there and I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm here for the next three years, which could have mm. felt really big. It was like, this is six months and I was going to make the most of it. So I got a Japanese tutor as part of my package for living overseas with the company. I leaned into Japanese lessons. I traveled all over Japan as much as I could, just did as much stuff as I could pack into those six months. Um, And through the course of that, just because I was like, oh, this is only six months, I I feel like that helped me just fall in love with the country and the experience. And so I ended up staying for wow. three and a half years. Oh, three and a half years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I ended up staying in Tokyo um, for oh three and a half gosh. years. And I feel like that experience, especially because it's not like Western culture, yeah. kind of in that tradition, you know, um, it was so eye-opening too, because it was so different in yeah. so many ways. And just understanding the difference in culture and their collective Mm, approach to life and Mm -hmm. just, you know, be in harmony. And there are upsides and downsides to every culture, right? Like there's great things. There's things that can be frustrating. There were definitely some things that were frustrating and also things that were just absolutely amazing. Like you walk around Tokyo and there's no trash cans and there's also no trash on the street. Like no litter. Anyway. No, right. It just the amount of pride that's taken. The food is just amazing. And so, you know, like fruit is expensive and also absolutely delicious, right? Like there's just these, these differences. And when I ended up deciding to stay, my grandmother had done Japanese flower arranging Mm. and, and always had arrangements in her house and did them. And I was like, I want to take Ikebana classes. And so I found somewhere to take an Ikebana class, which was this beautiful, like I got to learn more about Japanese culture, but also have this connection to my grandmother. She was still alive at the time. And she sent me one of her Ikebana books that she had from like the 1970s when she lived there. And it actually had like a a letter inside from one of her Japanese friends. And just, just this like amazing connection. And 
having had that opportunity and really leaned into, I'm going to do something that's very culturally like this Japanese to have that experience. I got so many different just insights about the culture and the beauty and the appreciation. So I feel like I learned a lot while living in Japan and I just have this absolute deep love for for Japanese people and culture and the country and just love it. I also feel like the fact that because your grandparents lived there, it's like connecting with your family when like connecting with your family in a totally different way, because you both lived a very unique experience in a totally different culture, country, language. And you could talk to them about something that like, you know, I mean, when I talk to my grandma, I'm talking to her about like food or, you know, chores or the basic things. And here you had like this whole other experience of, Hey, I can talk to you about like all of these things that I've experienced that you get. Yes. And I have two aunts. And at the time they were in high school, like high school and just graduated. So they actually lived over there at the time. So I got to have really interesting conversations with them too, about being like these, especially in the seventies, these American tall, and they're both tall and and one's 5'10 and blonde. Oh my gosh. And so like, yes, in Japan and what that experience was like, which was just, it was a really fun connection to be able wow. to make for sure. Okay. Okay. So that's country number four. Four. Okay. Five and six. <laughs> well, US is six. So okay. that's, but I'll talk about coming back to it. So five <laughs> is Hong Kong, Okay, um, cool. which I moved to from Japan. I had been there three and a half years. I was like, I'm not quite ready to go back to the US yet. So I went to Hong Kong, which was a really interesting experience as well, having been this British colony and the whole transition that they've been making back to China and just what that looked like. So I did not, it's interesting because it was a British colony. There's so much English there. So I I didn't even attempt to learn any Chinese, which now I have some regrets about because I'm like, I lived there. I lived there for about a year and a half. Oh, Um, that's still a long time. Yeah. And I was in a regional role in my job. And so I was covering kind of all of Asia, which was different in Japan. I was solely focused on Japan. And so that was a little bit different too, in terms of my interactions, my client groups were not Hong Kong nationals or Chinese nationals. They were both American, actually, the two main leaders I supported. So that looked a little bit different, but it it was great to have that experience as well and just get exposure to another country in Asia and see what that was like, learn how to navigate where I really, I learned enough Japanese to get by, did not learn a ton of Chinese. And so like taxi drivers was a trickier experience, learn (laughs) technology is so different. And that was a huge thing between being an exchange student in Belgium and being a missionary, Yeah, like cell phones at the time when I was a missionary, they were just like brand new, brand, brand new. And it was just like basic flip, you know, cell phones versus smartphones, like living overseas now that smartphones exist is a totally different experience versus like trying to navigate without that using actual maps. Oh my gosh. All those things, train schedules, having to go to the train station, pick up the schedule, like just totally different. So it's so interesting to think back on and just having to go and make a collect, you know, a calling card phone call internationally, which I don't even know if you know what calling cards are. I do know what a calling card is. Yes, I do. I do. (laughs) 
Um, so it was interesting being in Hong Kong and just realizing how helpful technology is mm. and how useful it is. And also just getting, I worked with a team from all over the world, yeah. which was also amazing. Wow. And then oh I moved gosh. back to the U.S. Okay. So that is country number six. That's um, country number six. So, wow. This is, I didn't know, like, I knew that you lived abroad because like we've talked about it here and there and like, yeah, there's always like sprinkles of yeah, Hong Kong or Japan. But I didn't know like the full breadth of just yeah. <laughs> how much you've lived abroad. So wow, that's amazing. Which takes me to the next question of we talked a little bit about like the bittersweet feeling of being abroad and then also the bittersweet feeling of coming back home. What have you done to move through that bittersweet feeling, whether you're abroad or at home? And for the people who are listening and you're kind of like, what bittersweet feeling? How, <laughs> I, I guess, how do you describe it? Like a homesick? So here's homesick? how I would, here's how I would describe it. And my friend who lived in Amsterdam for like eight years actually is the one who told me this term. Hmm. It's called hiraith. Hiraith is how you, I think how you say it. It's a Welsh in, word. Okay. okay. It's Welsh. And it means a deep longing for something, especially one's home, but it's got that like deep longing for something that's like different. So home could be it, but I feel like the experience is like, I just have this constant deep longing mm -hmm. and also joy. Like it's, it's totally that contradiction of it because you can feel two things at once. Yeah. Right. And so it's like that I'm constantly missing parts of past lives. Mm -hmm. And also I love my life now. And yeah. the past life's got me here. And so it's almost just that feeling of longing, yeah. I would say. Like there's just a feeling of longing. And and you never, I don't feel like I will ever feel totally at home anywhere. Mm. And I also will never not feel at home everywhere. Wait, can you say that one more time? Yeah. Like, wait, yeah. I think so I understood I feel, that. <laughs> yes. So I feel like I will never totally feel at home anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I will also always feel at home everywhere. It's like Ooh, everywhere is my home, but, yep. but nowhere is. So it's just yeah. this, and it's a hard feeling to explain. I actually, I think it could be true for different periods in your life too. It doesn't mm. matter whether you've lived overseas or in different countries or different places. Like there's different periods of your life that you miss. Yeah, And also you can't go back and you wouldn't necessarily go back, but you do. It's that like nostalgia on steroids. Nostalgia on series. I, I yeah. do totally understand what you're saying because now that I've been abroad for almost collectively eight years, I just picked up my 10-year residency card. So I'm now considered a permanent resident in Spain, Yay! Yay. Uh, which means after five years, I can actually apply for citizenship, which is wild to me because um, I did not expect like that opportunity to open to me. But I think when we were talking about like this bittersweetness of Oh yeah. Like when I go, actually, I've talked about this in therapy too. Um, when I go home, <laughs> which my therapist was like, well, stop calling Virginia home because that's not your home anymore. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. But when I go back to Virginia, it's like, oh, I get to have all of this like familiarity and I'm with my family again. But a part of me is like, oh, this isn't, this isn't it anymore. Like this doesn't, this doesn't feel good. Like it feels okay for a short period of time. But mm -hmm. if I stay for too long, then I don't feel good about like, the direction my life is heading for some reason. Yeah. Not in like a terrible way, but just like, this is not aligned. And then when I come back to Spain, I feel really excited because I'm like, oh, finally, I'm like back at my house with my like routine and stuff. And then when I'm here for a while, I'm like, hmm, 
I think I need to go somewhere. (laughs) Maybe not back to the United States, but I need to go somewhere because this is not it. Yeah. It really is that feeling of like, I feel good and I don't feel good. Like it just is this constant thing. I also, it's not just the places too. It's like the people, especially in the experiences I've had, I feel like I've had coworkers or people I've gone to church with or missionaries and you have this shared experience Mm. and this shared history. And it's almost like, I miss those people too. Not that they're not still part of your life, but it changes and it's different. And when you come back together, you get to like relive it a little bit too. So I also feel like I miss those people and they're still part of my life. So it's that same, like I'm home everywhere. I'm home nowhere. I have friends everywhere. I have friends nowhere. Like it just is. It's I feel like I have a wild thing. Yes. I have that conversation with my partner all the time where I'm like, I I don't have friends. And he goes, you literally just went to coffee with somebody yesterday. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, but it's not the same. Like, I don't have somebody I can call up to like go grab a random pizza. And then when I'm even back in the United States, and if I were maybe closer to the friends, like old friends, yeah, I don't know if they would have the time to go grab a pizza with me anyways. So I totally get it. Yeah. Oh, question for you. Have you seen the movies uh, Past Lives and also Everything Everywhere All at Once? I have not seen past lives. I've seen everything everywhere all at once, though. Okay. I feel like what you you were saying kind of reminds me of everything everywhere all at once. I haven't seen past lives either, but it does talk about this concept of, I think in Korean, it's called Inyang. And I'm going to, I might butcher this. So whoever's listening and this is not correct, please let me know. But it is the belief that any type of like connection you make, even if you're like walking across the street and like you brush shoulders or something, that means that there could be like, thousands and thousands of layers of inyang that means like you two were connected somehow somewhere in a past life and like that longing and yearning feeling that you were talking about before kind of reminds me of that too yeah I, I've not I don't know if I've experienced inyang I have to watch the movie but I heard that you like ball Okay. Now I'm going to have to watch the movie. My husband's out of town this week. I'm like, I can, I can just sit down and have a ball fest. Have a ball fest. Yes. Um, Okay. To the other questions that I have for you about living abroad and moving back home from a cross-cultural perspective, because now you work in leadership and culture. Is there something that you think is important that people should develop as leaders, um, especially leaders who occupy, I say the online space because, you know, when you work online, there are no borders, but maybe just leaders in general in any space. Yeah. I think the biggest one really goes back to that first experience I had in Belgium and that I learned at, at 14 or 15, you know, 14, 15 is don't, don't make assumptions, be Mm. curious, right? One of my biggest values is curiosity and it stems from that. And ask questions, be curious, don't make assumptions. That's number one, because you don't have the full cultural context. You don't know, like words don't mean the same things in different countries and different languages. Your approach isn't going to be taken the same way. It And so asking questions, being curious before you go into a space when you're knowing that there's going to be a lot of different people in those spaces. And if you think about online, there's people from everywhere online. And so you really have to think about how you're going to impact folks and ask those questions. And sometimes I struggle in the online space because I do 
have such an awareness of difference and nuance that like yeah. people will make these little pithy posts. And I'm like, okay, but you're missing like the other 25. Part yeah. Yes. Like all these things. And I get that, like, it's, it's online and you're being pithy and people's attention spans now and all those things, like you've got to grab them. And I think sometimes we sacrifice the impact that we could have in an mm-hmm. effort to be concise, to be pithy, to like catch people's attention because we missed so much of the nuance that's there. And so that's probably number one is like ask questions and be curious. Mm-hmm. Don't don't make assumptions about what a country or a place or people are like. So that's really, <laughs> I think that's the most important the one. one. Yes. And ask people. It, it's amazing to me how often, and it comes up like a really basic example is like folks who are writing things in like a foreign language mm. or advertising in a foreign country. And they aren't asking a local to like review that text to talk about how it's going to impact. And this goes to like why diversity in the workplace is so important and having different people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different experiences because you need people, because you need people to like check that. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how often they don't. And like that, that's, especially in the online space, it's so easy to find someone from the community that you're actually trying to reach to ask those questions or better yet, you know, hire them if yeah. you can do that. But but financially, that's not always possible, but you can always consult, right? Yeah. And have someone help you in terms of like, how is this communication going to land? Ooh, how yes. is my leadership style going to show up? As an example, I had someone I was facilitating in Japan and I I put my hand on my hip a lot because I talk too much with my hands. So I will put it on my hip just to like try and not have my hands be all over the place. And a woman came up to me afterwards, one of my coworkers and was like, so the way you were standing, and I think I had both hands on my hip. She's like, "It, it's very aggressive. And oh, wow. Which is like funny it, because in yes. the US, that's a power pose. Yes. Yes. And, and it goes back to cultural and culture differences and how, you know, what the expectation is in us, we're very individualistic. Japan is very collective. And so it's a, it's a big difference, but you need to be open and listen and curious and take feedback and believe people know about their own culture, which I'm amazed that sometimes people don't believe them. Like it's, it's yes. kind of shocking. At times. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Um, Yes, I I totally agree because I uh, finally, this happened to me, not necessarily related to culture, but I think something similar. Um, So you all can't see me if you're listening to the podcast, but I have Asian features or what would be considered Asian features from Asia. But now that could be, you know, questioned because globalization. But I remember my first year in Spain, I was in a small, small town with I think 11 to 12,000 people. And I'm from the suburbs of Washington, DC. So (laughs) that was like different. Yes, it was a huge shock. And I remember I went out to the bars and we were all just like drinking me and my friends. And um, somebody comes up to me and he was like, you're Japanese. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yes, you are. I was like, I'm pretty sure I would know what I am or am not. And he's like, no, 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 I know. 
because you're Japanese, your family's from Japan, and your family bombed Pearl Harbor. That's why the U.S. hates you. And I was like, just my family specifically. Like, that's a lot. Yeah. And I was just like, where did this information come from? And I don't know what happened. I think he was drunk, too. He just kept going and going and going. And I was like, okay, good for you. I'm going to go get another drink. I'm not going to entertain this conversation. And then he was telling me that he learned his English from playing Grand Theft Auto, the video game. Awesome. Yes. And watching Duck Dynasty. And I was like, okay, well, good for you for learning English. Questionable sources to be learning English from. But it just kind of reminded me of what you were saying about like, people just don't, they think that, I don't know, they just assume. They make a lot of assumptions. They make a lot of assumptions. And when you have not been exposed to a lot of difference in your life or in the world, it makes sense that people make those assumptions. Yeah. And we can do better. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. So going into that about assumptions, I want to ask you about emotional self-awareness and agility, because I do feel like what you were saying too, about like pausing, taking in the feedback, kind of like taking all of this information in. What is, first of all, emotional self-awareness and agility for all the folks who might be listening and are like, I'm not sure what this is. And can you share an example of what that actually looks like in action? Yes. So if we think about emotional self-awareness, it's really your awareness of your emotions, right? Just recognizing what's going on with you, how you're feeling about things, et cetera. So it's really that individual approach. Like it's your ability to recognize your emotions, preferences, internal states, et cetera. Agility is your ability to recognize that and be aware before reacting and deciding how you'd like to respond. So I always, I don't know why in my brain, when I think agility, I'm always thinking about like soccer drill or football drills, like sports drills where you're your feet are going back and forth between the little boxes or you're running around cones and just that ability to shift and not be stuck in one direction because your emotion came in really strong. So it's your ability to like recognize that emotion and then take a pause and take action that aligns with your values, with how you want to show up in the world, with your best interest, with the collective best interest in mind. So that's Mm. emotional agility. Got it. So what you're describing is almost like, I mean, I guess when somebody's cultivating it, it might be like a very... I guess, um, hard stop of like pause and then let me continue. But if somebody has cultivated like this skill, which I mean, you, you, we always can improve and like, you know, get better, Um, but this is like instant split second kind of like thing where, Oh, anger is coming. And maybe in my brain, I'm not even like aware that I took a pause, but it just now becomes like a habit. Is that like what that is like this Yes. Split second, not even reaction because that was responding. I would say when you get really good at this and even when you're good at it, different things set off different levels of emotion, right? And we get high, our brains get hijacked. But when you have this, it's like this automatic, for me, it's an automatic question when I'm feeling something strongly. And lots of times my body is the first to tell me I'm feeling Mm -hmm. something like my, my heart rate speeds up. And when I'm like angry, speeds up, my chest gets a little tight. And I know that I'm like on the verge of exploding is the wrong word. I'm not really an explosive person, but like not being able to not say exactly what I'm thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, I can feel that coming. And when I feel it, I 
am able to go really quickly into like, okay, what, why am I angry? Like, what about this is making me angry? What is being challenged in terms Mm. of my values, who I am, what I want to happen in the world that's making me so angry? Because then I take different actions usually Mm. where it's like, oh, I'm really angry about this because it feels unfair. And I'm concerned about this child's safety. Let's say I saw someone yelling at a kid. I don't know. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so what I'm really concerned about is this child safety and how, what action do I want to take versus like blowing up and yelling at, mm. at the person. In the context of like a work environment, if I'm going to facilitate a training, I will get a little bit of anxiety and I've learned. And so now that anxiety, like I feel it and it's there and I know it's always going to be there, but I know it's there because I care deeply about it. what I'm teaching Mm. and I want it to be understood. And I want the people to get it. Like I want whoever I'm instructing to get value out of it. And so, because I know that that's what that emotion is telling me, then I'm just take the steps to go, okay, I've got my objectives for this session. Mm. I know what we're going after. I know what's most important to me again, like have clear goals on here's what I want folks to understand. So then if the session gets off track, which happens frequently, I, I no longer have stress about it getting off track because I'm focused on the goal of what I'm trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just walked through the process a little bit, but it's basically recognize the emotion, understand what the emotions telling you, Mm. like what's the function of that emotion, which if in relationship, like if your feelings get hurt, the function of that emotion is telling you that you're not feeling valued maybe, or you're not getting the same response from someone that you were hoping for. Right. And then you can take intentional action. Yeah. That Mm. looks different. And coming back to like the cultural piece and the feelings of lost and like where that confidence come from comes from. I think part of it is when I do feel anxiety about, about where I am, frequently it's because I want to feel like I belong. Like yeah. that's important to me. That's not necessarily where the anxiety comes from for other people. And that's why this emotional agility is so important. But because a lot of that is like, I want to feel like I belong and I want, I don't ever, I want other people to feel like they belong too. So I don't want to like offend anyone or hurt feelings or do something inappropriate. Okay. Well now I understand that. And so because of that, I ask more questions. I approach things a little bit differently. I maybe sit back a little bit more and observe initially, like there's different actions I take because I've got those emotions that are Mm. like, you want to belong and you want other people to feel like they belong. And that's where those feelings of anxiety can come from. And then because of that, Rather than like maybe reacting in different ways, which at one point I think my anxiety was like, just don't go into that situation and then you won't have to feel that way. (laughs) Smart. Right. It's like, okay, but then I'm missing out on all these great experiences. So I got to figure out something different to do with that, with that emotion and that anxiety. Well, okay. So then for me, I guess emotional self awareness and agility is coupled with just like self awareness in general, because yeah, you have to know like what your emotions are trying to tell you and like when these specific emotions arise, like situations, instances and all of that. And then also at the same time, know more about yourself because like what you just described was, oh, okay, I know anxiety is telling me I'm a little nervous or I care a lot about this. And then on top of that, the other layer is your self-awareness of, okay, so that means I need to come in with like, you know, clear goals for myself. So I feel less anxiety, which I mean, this is super important. I think in general, 
And I feel like you can't have self-awareness without like the emotional self-awareness or yeah. And emotional agility piece. Yes. And I feel like you can't have those without really understanding what your values are and what's Mm. most important to you, which those look different for everyone. Yeah. Um, my, my big two would be like curiosity and belonging. And so those come up for me all the time. So I make choices based on those, whereas that may be not, you know, if those aren't your values, if your value is harmony, that may look different than what my value, you know, than how I show up and the actions that I take. Mm, Interesting. So question about all of this, what is, I guess, the biggest misconception that you see around emotional self-awareness and agility within your clients or just humans, the world? I, I, think, both. I think there's probably two big ones and they like get on my last nerve and, <laughs> and there's some pretty prominent thought leaders who sometimes mm-hmm. share these things and they make me ragey. One is emotions are not bad or good. Like Mm -hmm. that's number one. It's not about it. Uncomfortable. Sure. An emotion can be uncomfortable. I do not love when I feel angry. It is not a comfortable feeling for me. Yes. It is also not bad. It is data. So the fact that emotions are data is really important. And the other thing is the concept that like managing your emotions to a lot of people means I'm going to not have emotions. I'm going to control my emotions. And that's just not possible. Like you can't not have emotions. I mean, okay. Psychopath, different level, right? Like clinical, (laughs) different, different. But for the average population, you can't not have emotions. And so trying to not have them, which doesn't work, creates a lot of additional problems because then you deny that you're feeling that way, which means you can't actually take action that's going to help because you're Mm -hmm. denying it completely. And that denial, like you're shoving it in, you're stuffing it down, and then you have coping skills that you develop, a lot of which are not actually helpful. They're detrimental, Mm -hmm. right? And so they are not helping you get what you want. So that's a big one is going... We all have emotions and you're not going to stop that from happening and they are not good or bad. They are data. So if we know that they're coming and we know that they're data and that they happen, then you're in a totally different space around Mm. it, around like, okay, I have this data. What do I want to do with it? Versus like, I shouldn't feel, there's no shouldn't feel. Yeah. You don't get to do that. So when I see like thought leaders talking about like, emotional regulation. In the truest sense, my view is emotional regulation is recognizing your emotions and then taking the actions that you want to take. I think a lot of people take emotional regulation as being like, I can control my emotions. Yeah. And and you can't, you can control what you do with your emotions, Mm. the actions you take, but your emotions are going to be your emotions. Over time is I feel like as you get more comfortable with certain emotions, even the uncomfortable ones, then it feels less emotional in quotes, right? Yeah, It's still the emotions still coming. You're still having it. Mm, Yeah. So I see that a lot. Um, I think in like the personal development space too, where people are like, regulate your emotions or control your emotions. And I think that is placed a lot on like anger 
and maybe potentially another one that is like a considered a bad emotion. But I see that a lot where it's like, oh, you have to like control your anger. Again, if you are like, a, if somebody is physically abusive, that's like a whole other separate conversation. But like anger itself, I've seen people be like, okay, regulate that, control that because you don't want to like have an outburst, which I also get. But then I love like how you framed it too of when you're trying to like manage your emotions or regulate them, it ends up like people kind of just take it as, okay, I just don't have emotions. And then when I go home and I'm like by myself, I'll have my emotions later. Well, and as you were just talking that regulate, what I thought of is it's not regulating emotions that we want to do. It's processing, effectively processing Mm. our emotions. And I feel like that language would be so much better service because Anger is a really useful emotion. It tells us that something is butting up against our values and what's important to us. And so just shoving that away or trying to like stuff it down is not helpful. Also, violent outbursts, not helpful, right? But it is telling you something. So then you can figure out, okay, what action do I want to take in response to this and figuring out how to process emotions in a way that's going to best serve you. Yeah, because something that you mentioned too about like, we all have our own coping mechanisms and some of these coping mechanisms were developed in circumstances that maybe you we don't live anymore. I'm thinking about my coping mechanism of, I like I self-isolate sometimes when mm-hmm. I feel like bad, which is funny because I saw on TikTok that when, if your love language is like quality time, then the thing that you do is like remove it from yourself. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a coping mechanism that isn't helpful for me. And I still notice myself doing it because I haven't maybe like processed through that emotion or kind of paused long enough to be like, what is this emotion trying to tell me? Which then, I mean, since I'm living with my partner, it's most of the time I like self-isolate and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing. He's like, okay, well, we've been together for like eight years. Um, <laughs> I know that's not true. I know that's a lie. <laughs> yep. So I'll be here whenever you like finish your little pity party and we can talk about it. I'm like, oh, okay. It, you know, you mentioning TikTok reminded me, I saw a really interesting one the other day talking about, we should not only talk about our love languages, but we should talk about our I think she said maybe anger languages or like hate languages, but basically like how you show up when you are feeling upset and what you need in different circumstances. And I thought it was so interesting because in certain circumstances, you may need to walk away and have space. Yeah. That may be a coping mechanism. It may also just be, which, you know, coping strategies are not necessarily good or bad. It just depends on the outcomes you want. That may not be the best coping strategy in that situation, but it might be. Maybe you just do need time alone to process. And I just love that concept because I think it helps with that emotional processing of like, what do you need in those moments when you are feeling uncomfortable emotions that you need to process through what's going to be most helpful? Mm, I love that. I'm going to look that up on TikTok. Uh, now I know that TikTok is basically a search engine-ish. Um, I can just type it's in anything amazing. and it just <laughs> pops out for me. Um, okay. So last question around emotional self-awareness and agility is uh, how can someone start with emotional self-awareness and agility? And I always like to divide this into like two sections um, because sometimes people share lots of tangible tactical tips. And then in the process of developing whatever these skill sets are, we go through like a lot of mental, emotional, spiritual changes. So what could be tangible, tactical for people to start with? And then what about the mental, emotional, spiritual side? Okay. 
from a tangible tactical. And I will say in the business, Lakita, my business partner and I use this all the time. Also, number one is just starting is just noticing, like starting with just writing down if that works for you, making a note, but noticing when you're feeling an emotional response to something and then actually asking the question, okay, what, what is the function of this emotion? Both comfortable, happy, quote unquote, happy emotions and uncomfortable, quote unquote, not so happy emotions on both ends because it's all good data. So just that initial, initial noticing and awareness puts you in a space of understanding. It's not just that you're going to respond to this, like the emotion's not going to make you take action, right? You're going to notice the emotion and then you create that little bit of space. I think that from a mental, emotional, spiritual point of view, I think one of the biggest things with this is like, you almost don't get to just have the freedom of acting anymore on your emotions because you do have that new awareness. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that can actually feel a little bit like frustrating because it's like, well, why am I being so thoughtful about this? And everyone else gets to show up however they want to show up. And Mm -hmm. I miss when I just like got angry or whatever it was versus having that additional awareness. It's kind of like that Spider-Man quote with great power comes great responsibility. It's like, (laughs) Noticing your emotions is powerful and having that awareness. And then you do have that responsibility. And I think sometimes for myself, like I have higher levels of kind of disappointment in Mm. myself when I'm not showing up how I want to. And then I have to process those emotions. (laughs) That's a little bit of a cycle, but it can be a little bit jarring. And also you start to notice in other people too, when they're not processing their emotions or they're responding in a certain way. And so it shifts your relationships a little bit in that I now ask a lot of different questions. Like if someone's really upset, like, okay, what, tell me what you're upset about. And I'm like, kind of get annoying with how deep I go into that. Like, okay, but why, (laughs) but why, but why Um, to really get to that point? So I feel like as you embark on this journey, it kind of shifts your whole perspective and it can be a little bit of a like uncomfortable experience. It can put you in a little bit of that lost feeling of like, oh, I've got all this new information and what do I do with it? Yeah. And also something too, that you said about like relationships, I think I'm thinking about it with like my family or something like that. Like, oh, hmm, I'm noticing this now, like you were saying too, about like (laughs) Spider-Man because I'm noticing it and maybe my family's not going to say anything. Now I need to be that person to just question or decide, okay, I'm going to just leave it and then no, or decide for myself, like, okay, if I'm going to leave it, I also need to be okay with just letting it go yeah, and not like holding resentment towards them because I didn't approach it. And then also if I do decide to approach it, understand, okay, what is the next step after that? Whether it's like family or even like close friends or maybe with my partner, like, okay, what is this? Or am I just going to let it slide and we're just not going to talk about it? Well, and that, I think that ownership and personal responsibility in what you just described is so important because the number of times I will talk to someone, whether it's a client or just friends in conversation and they haven't expressed how they felt, but then they're upset that someone's not responding to how they felt. Mm. And it's like, well, if you don't express it, they don't necessarily know it. So it's a little unfair to hold them responsible 
for it. And so, yes, exactly that, like that awareness. And if you are not going to say anything, that's your choice. And it's totally a valid choice in a lot of situations and it will have a result. And that result is because of your choice. Yep. Mm, All of these things that I'm like, oh, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Going on though, I I do want to ask about um, leaving your religion because before you mentioned that you were a missionary, uh, you were Mormon. Um, I don't know if we actually said that you left your religion earlier. I have left my religion. (laughs) Yeah. So now I think I said I was Mormon. Yes. I am no longer, no longer practicing Mormon. Yes. Yes. So I'm curious, um, when did you decide to leave the religion and what was that process like for you? You know, I'm going to jump into this, but as I'm thinking about this too, this is almost like uh, two other countries, I not real countries <laughs> I've lived in, but like Mormon culture was my whole experience until I was 37-ish. Oh, wow. So a long time. So it has not been, um, it's just been in the past like eight years. <clears throat> wow. So I... I was kind of on my way out, I would say, when I was living in Asia, more so in Hong Kong. And the final decision was actually my oldest nephew came out to me and Mm -hmm. I was already kind of struggling a little bit and maybe not believing so much and having some cultural things, et cetera. And that, I think, put me in a position where I just felt like for me personally, it did not work anymore for me to be part of this religion that I was doing some mental gymnastics to make work like, oh, Mm. they don't hate gay people, but also you can't be gay in like a relationship and Mm. and still be in good standing with the church. Right. And those things just didn't work for me anymore. Um, And that, so that was kind of the final, okay, I'm done with this. But it was a process overall because 37 years and something that I truly believed in, you don't just like happen one day. Maybe, maybe you do, depending on the experience. For me, it was not just a one day, I'm going to change this because it's not only your belief system, it's also my entire community, my entire family living overseas. One of the things that made it much easier for me was I knew I would have that Mormon community overseas. Like I would have an expat community. So I'd have somewhere that felt like I belonged, which is so important to me right from the beginning. So even as I was living in Hong Kong, I was pretty much done, but I still was going and part of the community because it was my community. It was my friends. And there are lots of people I know who stay in Mormonism, even after they don't necessarily believe because losing that community is just too much, especially if their spouse is still in and believing and their, you know, kids and all those things. So it was definitely a process and slowly over time kind of figuring those things out. And I went through a big, like feeling like, well, if I, and this goes back to this lost feeling, it was like, well, if I don't believe in this, what do I believe in? And so for a little while I was in the space of, well, I don't want to leave this until I know what I'm going to. Mm Right. And finally getting to a point of like, it's okay for me to not know. Mm. And that's the same thing kind of in life. Like it's okay yeah. for me to not know what is coming. And that's an okay space to be. And I think as humans, we want so badly to know yes, everything. We want some semblance of control. And I think letting go of that and being able to say, oh, it's okay if I don't know, gave me the freedom to just to finally be done and leave. Yeah. 
Wow. So yeah. is there anything that you miss about Mormonism? And like when you left, was there grief? Because I mean, this was like an identity that you held for 37 years. Um, yeah. I mean, letting that go is painful, I think. Yes. Yes. It No, it definitely is. I don't know that it's true. It is for everyone. I feel like it probably is. But and I've talked to a lot of people for me in terms of what I miss there definitely is that community piece. And we have not talked about this, even though this is like my whole personality now. Um, pickleball has oh, like yeah. been this is your whole that, personality. It is my whole personality. <laughs> has been kind of that replacement. Um, oh, wow. I, in some ways, from a community point of view, because I can go, in fact, I was just in San Jose last week for work, which is not where I live and looked up online, like where places to play pickleball, found this place that had actually just opened, had like 20 courts, went in to open play, instantly was playing pickleball with people I'd never met before, right? Like instant community. I'm sure if I had not been there for work and doing other things, I probably could have connected with some of them and actually like gone out for coffee or planned to meet up. And so that community piece everyone needs community and religion has been a really great shorthand, like shortcut to getting community. Yeah. And so that's one of the biggest things. I also, I grew up singing, saying in college, I miss singing. I miss singing in church. Like (laughs) it's like these little things. So, um, definitely that there's also at times a feeling of just, I am no longer like at one point, my whole family, extended family, et cetera. I come from a long line of Mormons. Everyone was kind of in the same boat. And now there's a few of us who aren't, but it definitely, and my family is wonderful and lovely. And his, my immediate family, as well as my extended family are all great, all respectful of my choice. Like Mm -hmm. I've not had, which is not the case for lots of people. So I just want to say that. And it still creates this little bit of a difference where if people are talking, like, does everyone feel comfortable talking about certain things in front of me anymore? Mm. Probably not. Do I openly share all my thoughts about things? Absolutely not. Right. And so it, it creates a little bit of a shift there. And that was definitely not, not so much something I missed, but just something that's more complicated that I've left for sure. Wow. And so how long if you did grieve, was there like a time frame of grief or like, oh, I, yeah. like, okay, I'm just going to uh, do this and then it's, I'm good. I just in general, don't think there's ever a time frame, frame for grief. Like it yeah. just, it ebbs and flows and feels different there. I definitely at times was in the anger phase mm-hmm. and I still sometimes will get to that angry place and like a lot, there was grief for like losing the community, but there was actually a lot more grief for like choices I made as part of the community, things I uh, did that I would have, I think, done differently. Yeah. Um, there's also the positive side of there's definitely things I did that I would have done differently. And I'm really glad I didn't do them differently. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm glad I didn't start drinking really young, right? Like there's yeah. some things that I think are great about it. And there's so, right, like I am who I am today because of that. And so I will always appreciate my upbringing for that. And there were a lot of things about my upbringing that make me sad sometimes that Mm. I feel like I would have shown up a little bit differently. I would have not been so devastated that I didn't get married in my twenties, which was a a thing to get over. Like for me, 
not true for everyone, but for me, it was like, no one's choosing me. Cause that was, you know, my whole goal as a kid yeah. was like, you get married and have kids. So there was a lot, there still is a lot of grief about different things where I'm like, well, maybe this would have worked yeah. out differently, or I would have had this different experience. And also true. I love my life and where it is now. And all of this is part of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I feel like we talked about this maybe through Slack of this grief. Cause I, well, I left, I was raised Catholic during college. I decided to leave Catholicism. And I think I came home and told my parents that I'm agnostic and they were like, excuse me in front of my two younger sisters. And they were like, what kind of an example are you leaving? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, but I do think something that you just said applies to like the living abroad as well of, oh, I have a lot of grief because like I could have had a life in the United States and I don't know what it could have looked like, but it could have been just as wonderful and amazing. And I could have had like different friends. Um, the business could have looked different. Um, I don't know. I could be living somewhere else. And I also love my life that I've created over here. And then sometimes I also think, what if I move back to the United States? And then I get sad because I'm like, I would have to let go of everything that I built over here. Does it make sense to like, now I'm in like this floating in between of which one do I want? And I've chosen here, but it is that, I guess, the grief of what could have been, what could have, like, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, what could have been, what isn't going to be because of the choices and the happiness I still have because of my choices. And then like the sadness that I have because of my choices. Yay, duality. (laughs) No, it totally is duality. And I, I honestly think life is like, if you feel things deeply and like love people and places, it also means your life's going to be full of grief because we can't be everywhere all the time. We can't be with everyone all the time. We have to make these choices. And so it, it is just that reminder, like, and I think about this, especially my mom passed away when I was 18 and it's still right. It's been years and I still miss my mom. And it's testament to the fact that I adored her and she adored me and we had, you know, and so it's like, I almost look at feeling grief as this like gift of sorts, because Mm. if you didn't love where you had been or an experience or what something was like, you probably wouldn't feel grief over losing it. Mm. And so it, they kind of just go together. And so I think I've made a lot of peace. It doesn't mean that it isn't hard and uncomfortable and all those things. I just feel like I've made a lot of peace with grief because it's indicative of like missing out on something. There of course is grief for miss things that don't necessarily mean it was a great situation. Right. And so there's nuance and right. This is me. I can't just say a blanket thing (laughs) because there's nuance and everything. So, but a lot for me is like, I have grief about leaving Mormonism because I did love my community. Yeah, I loved being able to be part of something bigger than me. And so that's a great thing. And I miss that. And I don't believe in it. And there are things that are really problematic for me. So it's not an option for me anymore. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So many things to go in, but I feel like that's a whole other podcast conversation. (laughs) Um, So I will ask the last question about leaving your religion and then get into the second to last question that I always ask folks. Is there a lesson or value that you have taken from Mormonism that you're still I guess, believing in today, even though you're not like a practicing Mormon. Did that question make sense? 
Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Because I was like, so Wait, what did I just things say? that kind of basically things that I've I've taken with me. Yes. I definitely think that sense of helping community mm-hmm. is always going to be really important to me. Um, as far as that, you know, serving people, taking care of them, I look for those opportunities. There were often opportunities in part of this Mormon community to like take meals to someone, help them out, you know, just do different things. And so that I think is a huge thing that I am taking with me. Also just the overall industriousness of Mormons. Like what does that mean? Like doing work, just getting out there and doing work and being industrious about it. There's some there's some unhealthy sides of that and some shame, <laughs> but there's some great things about it too. It's like, just go to work, right? Like yeah. get up and go to work. And that's something that I definitely got from Mormonism as well. So oh, I love these. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing, Chloe. Yeah. And okay. So last second to last question before we wrap up, I've loved hearing your story, by the way. Uh, what is a nuanced since we talk so much about nuance, uh, what is a nuanced conversation you think we're not having enough of? I'm not sure that I would say it's a nuanced conversation, but I think it's just the nuance in general of like how often two things that seem opposing can be true. And I, mm. I just, there's so much divisiveness, I feel like right now, especially yes. in online spaces, because, because it's hard to well represent yourself in online spaces. And I think if we were able to better admit that we don't know things, like I believe this thing and I'm not sure I want this thing. And I know that it's, it would be challenging like that. And part of conversations that I feel like we just do not have enough of, I feel like it's getting better and people are more capable of having those nuanced conversations or having those like understanding that you can feel two things at the same time, that you can think two things at the same time that aren't necessarily aligned, um, that we can agree on a lot of things and disagree on other things. Like, I don't, I just feel like there's not enough, there's not enough conversation around the nuance and who we are as people. So I took that (laughs) question and switched it. It's not a nuanced conversation. It's a conversation about nuance. I love Um, it. I don't, I don't feel like there's enough conversations about nuance and differences and, and how we show up differently. And that goes back to, I think where we started this, as far as like, my experiences in different cultures and there's not one right way to be. There are right ways to treat people, but there's not one right way to be in the world. Mm, I was a little all over the place for you. Um, No, I loved it. (laughs) And um, it totally did like an Uno reverse on me, (laughs) but it was great. Okay. So before we fully wrap up the conversation, I love ending each of my podcast episodes with either a journaling prompt, exploratory question, or an activity for people if they want to explore more. So do you have journaling prompt, exploratory question, or an activity? doesn't have to be all three, something. I think uh, it's going to be all three, actually, in one. Um, And I would say journaling prompt at the end of the day, what, if any, big emotions did you notice? Hmm. And what did those emotions tell you? Mm. Like get curious about it. So it's a little bit of an activity and a journaling prompt and coming with that emotional awareness and agility piece. And I think that is such a great way to just start to connect 
to yourself and your emotions. I think as you know, those of us who were raised and socialized female are socialized to notice those things a bit more yeah, and be okay with our emotions. And so, and I think we have been told that we're emotional and it's shameful in some ways. And so doing this activity can really help get out of that space. And for any of your, you know, those who are socialized male listeners, they're socialized that like having emotions is bad frequently. And so this is an opportunity to do that same thing, recognize emotions and start to be more aware of like the impact the world is having on you. What, Mm. what is, what are your emotions telling you? So that's probably, yeah, that's probably it. I love that. It was a three in one y'all. If you're listening to this, you can rewind um, and write that down so you can explore. I will probably be doing the same for tomorrow's journaling prompt in the morning. Um, But Chloe, thank you so, so much for joining and for sharing your story and just really entertaining all of these questions that I had about like everything, because I mean, we've known each other, I think for now, a year and a half too, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is the first time that I've actually had the chance to like sit and really listen to your whole story. At least like (laughs) a good chunk of it. Um, A lot. (laughs) Yeah. But it was awesome. I loved it. So thank you so much for being here. And is there anything that you are excited about in the upcoming months? And then where can people reach you if they want to connect with you further? Perfect. There are so many things I'm excited about. Two big things from uh, what what I do perspective, work perspective at Co-Create Work. We are doing these intensives, one of which is manager development. So for folks who have smaller businesses, maybe you don't have in-house learning and development, we will come in and work with you with your culture on manager development. And I love this one. And what made me think of it is one of the courses that we do frequently workshops is around emotional self-awareness and agility. And it truly is like a game changer for people to just walk through the whole process. The other thing I'm really excited about is we have our co-create work culture certification that is coming out to help people do the work that we do in companies, which is not just manager development. In fact, most of what we do is around culture business strategy, how they all work together, helping you build systems. Yes. The systems that help build that culture. We have intensives around that, that we do ourselves with clients, but the certification program is going to be helping other folks, even whether you're in house in, in a big organization in like talent or leadership development, or just a leader who wants to get better at doing this. Or if you're a business owner consultant, this is for you to help you take our approach with our five components of culture and apply them and know how to work with teams and do really great work because we are so excited about the future of work and helping leaders do it and bring it and all those things. So I love it. those are the two it. things I'm really excited about. Amazing. I do think I'm really excited about the co-create work culture certification. I think it's going to be amazing, mainly because I think more people are having conversations about it now. And if you are in a leadership position or want to kind of like, I guess, broaden your leadership, the certification would be awesome. Yes. And Lakita and I, Lakita brings a social work background, systems background, has so much knowledge about business strategy. I've got all this actual country culture, which helps in terms of building business culture, because as we're thinking about it, and as we're teaching folks how to do this, we are bringing that breadth of experience to folks and helping them think about, think about how they build culture in an organization differently for the future and with intention. 
I love it. Also, Lakita is also on that podcast. Don't know which episode right now, but you can find her her interview somewhere along the way. Eventually, yes. Yes. (laughs) And then you can reach us. It's cocreatework.com. You can follow us on Instagram at cocreatework. You can follow me on Instagram. It's it will be in the show notes. It's Chloe Anderson, two underscores, but my last name's spelled Danish in the Danish way. So it's different with an E, (laughs) not a no. Yes. So you can find us all the places. Amazing. Also, Chloe and Lakita have a podcast called the Co-Create Work Podcast. So I will link it in the show notes so that you can listen to their episodes. They talk a lot about leadership, um, personal development, and culture as well for your business and company and all of the things. So yeah, all of all of that can be found in the show notes. Um, Chloe, thank you so much for You're joining so um, and for waking up early. I know it's early on your end. Like no worries. Evening for me. <laughs> No, it's great. And I was going to say, I was going to say, I know sometimes with all these different background things, people have more questions and feel free to to DM me on Instagram. You can also find me on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about any of it. Oh yeah. Chloe loves talking about these things. I loved like chatting with her about it too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chloe. And to everybody else listening, thank you for joining for this episode and we will see you in the next one. Stay fierce, fam. If you're hearing this message, that means you made it to the end of this episode. Yay. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and thought to yourself, whoa, it's me. I'd love if you could share this with others, post about it on social media and, or leave a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe too. Want to hang out with me in other areas of the internet? You can follow me on Instagram at Cassandra TLE. For brand message and content marketing tips and resources, check out my business at the Corky Pineapple Studio. Thanks again and see you in the next episode. Stay fierce, fam.